The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Night talk. Jerry from Rockwall, you're on. Uh, Barry, have you ever entertained one single doubt about the truth of the Holocaust? I think we've had this conversation before, sir. And see, when you make these accusations against Jews, when you start questioning the Holocaust, I think you should have some facts available. And the facts are available. Well, of course, we'd love to sit down with you and debate them with you. Uh-huh. Well, who's we? Am I talking to a we or a you? Well, Barrett, we're organized in our belief the same way the Zionists are organized in their belief. Yeah, well, we, we could debate it. It would be very easy and simple. In fact, it would be far more simple and valuable for you to get in touch with, let's say, the Holocaust Museum down in Washington. Uh -huh. They'll send you the names of all the Jews who died during World War II. They have all this information. I mean, it'd be the first one to say if somebody made a mistake, you know, they say six million died, it could have been five million or, or seven million. It could be two also. Is, is that the issue, that uh, two million innocent people died? Why should one single innocent person die, Jew or non-Jew? I agree, Barry, but the Zionists are using this issue and the guilt on the American public to extort from us our tax dollars. Now, the figures we have say every family in Israel gets over $10,000 of our taxes. I know the argument, friend. It's the grape theory of history. I've heard it before. It says when things ain't good, instead of getting down and doing something about it, instead of changing your life, it's a hell of a lot easier to blame somebody else. And it just don't wash in my book. Mm -hmm. See, the word America, Barry, means heavenly kingdom in the Gothic language. Yeah. It's the real New Jerusalem of Scripture, and it shows you how the Jews are imposters. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January 4, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Kicking off the new year with Western University Associate Professor of Political Science in studio, Salim Mansour, who will, of course, entertain us with his ever-enlightening observations and takes on both domestic and world affairs. Hello, Salim. Hi, Bob. Hi, Robert. Hi, Salim. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy Thank New you. Year. Got a lot to talk about today, so before we kick off the conversation, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Salim, I want to start off by saying to our listeners that you do have a new book that's out. Thank you, uh, Robert. Uh, the title is uh, The Quran Problem and Islamism. It's by Mantua Books, uh, 2017, and it's available on Amazon.com and will be available or should be available in Amazon.ca. Excellent. And um, the Quran problem, that's something I want to read. I talked about it today, but we I haven't read the book, and I want to give it justice. I want to read it, digest it, and then we'll have you back. Thank you. What I want to talk about today is a retrospective of, of 2017. <laughs> And, uh, of course, so much has happened. This year will go down in history, or last year will go down in history, as one of the most momentous political years, especially in the United States. And I think we ignore Can Canadian politics at our peril. 
But first of all, point by point, let's take um, last first. Jerusalem, Trump wanting to move the embassy of the United States to Jerusalem rather than Tel Aviv. Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was a long-awaited decision uh, to be made by an American president. The presidents are the... uh, executive-in-chief in the American Constitution. They are the one who have the prerogative of making foreign policy decisions. The Congress had passed a bill on Jerusalem some 25 years ago, and four presidents, George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama, did not execute that policy that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And Trump had campaigned on, on that. He had promised that if he is elected, that would be one of his first major act. And he delivered. Let me take just a moment and put it in some context over here. 2017 was an amazing year, if you look back. We haven't had that time to discuss it in what way 2017 was an epochal anniversary year. It was a year full of anniversaries. I mean, you can go back to Martin Luther, October 31st, 95th, 500th anniversary. It was the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. It it was the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, the centenary year, which is most pertinent in the case of the Middle East. It was the 50th anniversary of the June 1967 war in which uh, Israel came to take the West Bank, uh, unite Jerusalem, etc. So all of that was in the background in a way that the decision of Trump coming in this year, coming at the end of this year, that is 2017, in my view, is a turning of the page on Middle East history. What began with the Balfour Declaration, the promise that there will be a Jewish homeland in historic Palestine, and the hundred-year preoccupation by the Arabs to deny that in so many different ways. And so we come to Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem, and then it will be followed up by the moving of the American embassy to Jerusalem where it should be. I read it as the closure. So the vote that took place at the UN, uh, the General Assembly vote, first was the Security Council vote denouncing this move, and United States was the only permanent member to veto it, so it did not go anywhere. And then the UN General Assembly took up the issue, prodded by the Arab states, and that vote took place in which the resolution was passed, but it means nothing. 128 countries voted for it, and we can Take time does it, does and it really mean it. nothing? Is it just symbolic? or is It was symbolic. It was a condemnation yeah. of the United States. But what does it mean? General Assembly votes are symbolic. Votes, like going back to the General Assembly vote of 1975, that Zionism is racism, which is what then was revoked after the Gulf War in 1992. And that was the context when the Congress passed the law recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. I say this is the end here because this was the last spasm of the Arab states and their allies now, the Europeans, in trying in some ways to uh, stop or condemn the action of the United States government, in this case Trump, from recognizing what I think is pretty much a de facto established reality. The question was de jure, the legality of it. And with President Trump recognizing it, I think the matter is over. And much to Canada's shame, Canada abstained from the vote. 
to great shame, to a great shame. And it shows that this government, the present government in Ottawa, led by Justin Trudeau, has bent backwards to appease the Islamist vote in this country. Speaking uh, of that, his recent uh, talk about bringing ISIS combatants back into Canada and rehabilitating them, of all things, uh, your, ta- your, your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely. It makes no sense, and it goes to show where Justin Trudeau is. Even when it comes to the Arabs and Muslims, if they catch hold of ISIS members, they're being put against the wall and eliminated. I mean, there is no room. It is like, you know, catching the last straggling members of the Nazi party and the higher-ups in the Nazi party after uh, May 8, 1945, as they're running away, and you say you're going to bring them up and rehabilitate them and make gentlemen of them. It is as absurd as that, but that's what Justin Trudeau is doing. (laughs) In the past, we put them on trial and we hung them. That's right, and and, and there is no room for it. So this is part of the pattern of appeasement that is going on. But you're absolutely right, Robert, the abstention was totally uncalled for. And I think as we go into 2018 and look back upon it, it will be one of the very costly votes that Canada did not vote on and abstain from. There's so many other issues to go back over during 2017. One of the more recent ones, of course, was Roy Moore. Your thoughts on Roy Moore? My thoughts on Roy Moore is that the people sat out the vote. That is, traditional Republican GOP voters did not come out as they might and should have come out and taken Alabama because Alabama is a conservative state. It is a red state. And so the loss of that seat was in some ways a stain on the Republican Party. And it goes to show that the divisions in the Republican Party as a result of the November 2016 election, the party hadn't come together, and this not coming together has been the price that the party has paid in losing a very important seat. Trump supported the party nominee, that was Luther Strange, but Luther Strange lost the primary. And so the question is, why did Luther Strange lose the primary? And the answer in part is, Again, the war inside the Republican Party, that is, between the establishment forces who are seen as rhinos by the grassroots and true-blooded conservatives, the patriots. And Luther Strange lost it, which was a slap on the face of Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, the Republican leader in Congress. Trump supported Luther Strange. And when Luther Strange lost, Trump reluctantly went along and supported Roy Moore because he needed that seat. The margin at the Senate is very, very slender, very slim, 51-49. And then you have the many rhinos, like during the vote for Obamacare repeal, you had three rhinos, John McCain, Susan Collin, and Jeff Flake, uh, voting against the party. On the whole, I think what it means is it is a wake-up call to the Republicans and to the grassroots basis of uh, the Trump supporters. And the Democrats taking the seat is only going to be a temporary measure. The seat will revert back to the Republicans when the seat is up. Roy Moore is in a, another fatality of the sex scandals that are rocking both Hollywood and Washington. Do you see any parallels between Al Franken who resigned his seat versus Roy Moore, who was denied a seat 
over sex scandals. Now, I can see one glaring distance. Maybe you can comment on it, of course, is that Al Franken. There's the photographic evidence and his admission of guilt. And with Roy Moore, there's zero evidence other than he said, she said. And, of course, he denies the allegations. Can you see any... Well, in the politics of it, Al Franken's resignation was conditional on the basis that the Democrats expected Roy Moore is going to win because that's a red state. And if Al Franken then steps down, he had said he will resign. If he steps down, then the pressure would be then to disbar or put out uh, Roy Moore, uh, expel him from the Senate on whatever grounds that they can come up with. But now the question is moved. The Democrats themselves cannot afford to lose a seat, you know, and then Al Franken's seat will be up for grabs in Wisconsin, even though temporarily it might be filled by the governor. But it goes to show this whole issue that erupted, there was one side of it was genuine, People like Harvey Weinstein and others that have been exposed, Charlie Rose, big-time media players that have been, uh, Mark Halperin uh, and others, as people who are sexual molesters or sexual predators, and uh, Hollywood is ripe with it, uh, Congress or politicians are ripe with it. So that, that aspect was there. But the way the liberal mainstream media played this, it was all out to get Trump. Of course. This was this was the whole agenda. And I don't think that agenda is over. I think they are going to they're going to come back at it more vigorously in twenty eighteen and they will try to pin the argument that Trump has to pay in some ways for the history of a sexual molestation that Trump is stained with. Now whether that is true or not is another matter. But Trump was wetted by the people in the 2016 election. The women who the media brought out were exposed as hoax, uh, many of them. And the Hollywood tape uh, was broadcast, was used by the Democrats to defeat Trump. The public were fully aware for it when they went to vote on November the 8th. And so that issue, in that sense, should be settled, but I don't think the media will let it. Former Access Hollywood host Billy Bush is speaking out amid the reports that President Trump is casting doubt on the authenticity of the footage from 2005 that came up during the presidential campaign. He said it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the... That's the first line of Billy Bush's op-ed, which both blasts President Trump and has Bush owning up to some of his own mistakes. He says he and other men who were on that bus that day thought they were just watching a crass stand-up performance from, quote, America's highest-rated bloviator. End quote. He says now the president is indulging in revisionist history. Bush says he now takes the accusations of more than a dozen women with sexual misconduct claims against the president seriously. And in the current national conversation about sexual harassment, Bush quotes gender relations expert Jackson Katz saying this is not a women's issue. It's a men's issue. Linda Lopez, ABC News. So you can read that op-ed by Billy Bush in the New York Times, but Bush is going to be a, a guest on Stephen Colbert's late night talk show tonight. I always I thought he got a raw deal because... You know, in that tape, yeah, he was laughing along and everything, which wasn't great. But how do you stand up to somebody like that? Yeah, that that doesn't make it right. When everybody else, no, it doesn't but make it right. But I get it. I understand. Of, a lot of people pointing out, you know, that Donald Trump was the person who allegedly said those things. Allegedly, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Uh, he's still president yet. Billy Bush gets fired. Right. It really, it really does feel like a, a raw deal for him. Yeah. Nevertheless. 
to me, uh, maybe a bit of a strange comparison, but the Silver Dome is sort of a visual illustration of uh, Donald Trump's presidency right now. Uh, there's smoke coming out. Uh, the beams are cracked. Uh, the seats have fallen in. It's still standing, but how long until it uh, comes crashing down? You know what? I don't know. It we, feels different this time uh, with what's going on right now, but at the same time, it's like this is what a big segment of the American population apparently wants. Well, when Roy Moore is leading in the uh, in the ratings leading up to the uh, election, you have to wonder, although I, I just watched Jimmy Kimmel's uh, uh, video this morning. We were at a family gathering the weekend. We were all watching these Jake Bird videos of uh, him at a Roy Moore rally. Yes. Uh, so yes, I'm with I Jimmy Kimmel, that. who... Uh, says he is a, a self-professed Christian. Yes, uh, well but, known. Uh, he's going down to tackle uh, Roy Moore, and he said he's going to take some cheerleaders down there to see if uh, Roy can keep a uh, little Roy in his little Roy pants under control. And he's having a a lot of fun with it. I'm with uh, Jimmy Camel. Camel, this uh, thing with Roy Moore is beyond embarrassing. Well, it it is embarrassing. I mean, the man was banned from a mall for you know going after young girls it's uh but you know what if trump says he he didn't do anything wrong well then his people will believe him he believes him yeah Yeah. we're back with salim answer salim one of the biggest i think stories in 2017 is how the economy under trump has soared and american productivity is getting back on track Yes, this is the biggest story, and it is what will make all the difference. All the other story just pales away. I mean, here is Trump getting elected, inauguration June 20th, and the stock markets begin to break all records. Uh, and we, we, by the end of the year, now have the results. The GDP growth rate has now taken somewhere around about 3.1%, 3.2%. That's absolutely amazing given the fact that during the Obama years, the growth rate was basically flat, you know, at 1% or less. The unemployment is at 17 years low. The wage gains is at 17-year high. The stock market has broken all record. It is now up 24,000 in Dow Jones, uh, where it was below uh, 19,000 when Trump got inaugurated. And it's still steaming ahead. The biggest news of the year, and maybe of the decade, is the tax bill that Trump was able to get through despite all the difficulties with his own party and all the uh, rancor and infighting and the media effort to basically sell fake stories about Trump, uh, the Russia collusion and so on. Trump was able to get together his people and despite a razor-thin majority at the Senate, Trump had the bill passed. Not one single Republican senator, not John McCain, not Jeff Flake, not Bob Corker of Tennessee, not Susan Maine, none of them basically walked out of the commitment to vote for the tax reform bills. This is huge. Well, Trump uh, Trump did quite a dramatic year-end event there, even not with his taxes, but the regulatory cutback. Exactly. The tax and bill carried both the bill for the repeal of the Obama mandate, mm-hmm. and it opened up the Arctic drilling 
you know, that Obama had stopped. So that is part of the whole energy front where America is now energy self-sufficient and is leading an ener- energy revolution. So, right, Bob, well, it was is, an is amazing there, story. Is, was it true what Trump said in that release? He said, you know, for every new regulation, we're going to get rid of two. And it turned out that instead of getting rid of two, they got rid of 22. Yes, <laughs> and, yes, and you saw yes. that dramatic visual that he created right. with the pile of regulations. Yes. Is that for real? Yeah, it is for real. And, and, and as, as people have noted, that it is what basically so simple has taken the effort of having a man like Trump in the White House do it, which is what, what you're, was you're to saying relieve. exactly what's on my mind. How is it that, that something so simple was not done for so many years? Again, ideology. The foot of Obama and the Democrats were on the throat of the American economy. To what end? What it mattered was to raise it. The whole democratic ideology and politics is about redistribution. It is not about unleashing the energy of the people. It is about government taxing and distributing. That means government choosing who is going to be the favorite winners, who are going to be the losers, and then deciding how the economies go. This is the European model. This is where uh, Obama was taking the country. That was part of the Obamacare. What Trump has done, basically, is taken back America. This is the amazing thing which has been missed by the media deliberately. Trump has done nothing new. Trump has gone back to making America great again by going back to the founding principles of America. Right. You know, more limited government, the tax reform is, you know, giving back the people the power to have their own money and decide how they're going to spend it, uh, opening up the economy so the money that has been uh, stacked away offshore uh, by businesses and corporation comes back home to America and putting America first, as, as Trump has said. It is all about putting America first. This American first, and which means releasing the American energy for doing what America does best when they are free. So when you think about it, what we are witnessing is almost a revolution, but a revolution in the grand traditional sense. Take the symbolic things, the the simplest thing. What did Trump say? We are going to once again say Merry Christmas. It is so simple. There is nothing here complex about it. But when you dig deep, it is complex because America is a Judeo-Christian country. And what these people were trying to do was to take that away from America. Now, whether you believe in, 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 in the Christian God or the Jewish God or the Muslim God or whatever you believe in, the Buddhist God or the non-God, it's your personal belief. But the culture and the civilization has been built upon the dollar bill calls for in God we trust. The the church was disestablished by the First Amendment, but the religion was not disestablished. America is very much a patriotic, Christian, traditional country. And saying Merry Christmas, the simple idea that you say Merry Christmas was taking back the country from where the country was headed. From the domestic point of view, at home, the Democrats and Trump's oppositions are trying to use foreign issues as his undermining. You know, everything. They're still going after this stupid Russian thing. Yes. And even Putin has come out 
on Trump's side and said, <laughs> look, it, this is hurting your country. When are you guys going to stop it, right? right? Is that ever going to go away? Are they going to keep on that damn Russian thing from now till, you know? <laughs> no, I, 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 my hunch is that it, this will all fall flat in the early months of this year because we are now expecting the Inspector General report to come out from the uh, DOJ, the Department of Justice. And once that uh, report is out, then Trump and his administration will have all the arguments present for the Attorney General to recuse himself. He had recused himself to re-recuse himself to get back into the action and call for an end to the special counsel that is, you know, basically fire Mueller or ask him to produce his report within a certain time frame. And, and that will bring to an end all of this shenanigan. But what Trump did, uh, despite whatever the media has been saying, is to allow this story to unfold and these people by the length of their own rope, hang themselves. So what now we see to the extent to which FBI under Obama was corrupted. FBI was supposed to be the one agency that was truly American, truly neutral. It was the police agency. You know, we all know from third world countries and from the former Soviet Union and now Russia and China that it is the police agency that is the most despicable because they are the ones that basically run the country and and defend the elite power. And FBI was supposed to be the one agency that was totally neutral, that stood above and, and, and saw the equality of law and justice for all. And the extent to which it has been corrupted, we see that, that uh, Mueller's team uh, basically is made up of uh, all the fans of Hillary Clinton. The fans of Hillary Clinton, instead of looking into the true Russia collusion, which was Hillary Clinton's collusion, the Uranium One scandal, the uh, 30,000 email server gate scandal, the funding of the Clinton Global Initiative, the, her foundation, her husband going on and getting paid by the Russian for a 20 minutes appearance, half a million dollar, and so on and so forth. These were the true scandal to the extent that she, in the office of the Secretary of State, had compromised the United States. But instead of doing that, they went after this fake scandal based on a fake dossier, which Hillary Clinton and her campaign paid for in millions of dollars, this dossier uh, with the uh, MI6 spy, the British spy, Christopher Steele, who manufactured it and, and, and the, and the storyline that you know, Trump went to Moscow and had uh, a rainbow shower of, 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 of Russian uh, prostitutes, uh, uh, prostitutes yeah. peeing on the bed that uh, Obama and Michelle had slept in. in, in I in love Moscow. Trump's response to that. I'm a German <laughs> I'd never do anything like that. <laughs> and the people involved, the deputy director of FBI, the man just below James Comey, uh, Andrew McCabe, who ran the investigation, his wife was being paid over half a million dollars by the Clinton people, that is uh, the Virginia Governor McAuliffe, to run for a Senate seat in, in the Virginia Assembly. And here her husband, this is a 
direct conflict of interest was looking into or, or leading investigation into Trump collusion. And then there are agents like Peter Stroke, uh, FBI agent, writing love letters to a woman with whom he was having an affair, an FBI lawyer, and talking about how much they want to see Trump defeated in the election and what is the insurance policy that they have to get together if Trump does win and so on and so forth. This this is a mighty big scandal. This is a story waiting to explode in the face of Mueller and company. And I think it is very much reaching that point. Now, if Trump had capped this uh, investigation, none of this would have come out. So Trump played along, allowed these people to show their true color, and now the country knows it, or at least half the country knows it. If the Democrats don't want to know about it, the other half does know how utterly ridiculous this whole thing is. We've begun the most far-reaching regulatory reform in American history. We've approved long-stalled projects like the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipelines. We're cutting years of wasted time and money out of the permitting process for vital infrastructure projects. We're lifting restrictions on American energy, and we've ended the war on coal. We have clean coal, beautiful clean coal. One of the very first actions of my administration was to impose a two-for-one rule on new federal regulations. We ordered that for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. As a result, the never-ending growth of red tape in America has come to a sudden screeching and beautiful halt. Earlier this year, we set a target of adding zero new regulatory costs onto the American economy. Today, I'm proud to announce that we beat our goal by a lot. Instead of adding costs, as so many others have done and other countries, frankly, are doing in many cases, and it's hurting them, for the first time in decades, we achieved regulatory savings. Hasn't happened in many decades. We blew our target out of the water. Within our first 11 months, we canceled or delayed over 1,000 500 planned regulatory actions, more than any previous president by far. And you see the results when you look at the stock market, when you look at the results of companies, and when you see companies coming back into our country. And instead of eliminating two old regulations, for every one new regulation, we have eliminated 22. 22. That's a big difference. And by the way, those regulations that are in place do the job better than all of the other regulations, and they allow us to build and create jobs and do what we have to do. cosmopolitan nation like the United States has reason to cherish affection for all nations of the world, whom she properly considers her forebears. Yet, the inescapable consequences of the debt are, someone must pay it. And if your nations cannot pay the debt you contracted to save yourselves from destruction, they will have to be paid by the American taxpayer himself. And the burden on the American taxpayer for sharing his part of the war is too heavy. 
He cannot pay his own debts and yours, too. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who make it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past archived broadcasts featuring our past discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Salim Mansour, and Robert, you had a question. Well, I wanted to change the focus, if we could, to foreign uh, policy. We've been talking about Trump and uh, domestic policy and the intrigue and drama and scandal that's going on there, which puts any Hollywood interpretations of Washington, D.C. to shame. But let's go abroad now and think about, first of all, the defeat of ISIS, a non-story. It is a huge story in, in foreign policy. Term, You'd never the, know the it biggest. by looking at the press. You never know when you look at the press, especially the American press. They have barely reported about it. You have to go into the foreign press to see it. The story uh, at the end of last year, the big story as a summation was taking place in BBC that the ISIS have lost 98% of their territory, practically 100%, you might say. It is simply the mopping up operation. I mean, I have this image of Berlin, yes. uh, end of April, early May 1945, and all that the Nazis control is the bunker of Hitler where he's going to blow his brains out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a mopping up operation. And the ISIS, when it came into the scene in 2014, the rampage that it caused, this was Obama's uh, middle of his, Obama's second term office and it seemed that nobody was going to stop it and they were going to just about overrun all of the Middle East with their barbarism and the savagery that we have seen and Trump quietly but absolutely effectively and efficiently have just destroyed them. Well some wog on Fox News the other day attributed this to the policies of the generals under Obama. So that's why we defeated ISIS. This was all planned under Obama. What do you have to say to that? Yes, everything was planned under Obama, but it waited for Trump to come into office <laughs> <laughs> to execute them. Yeah, under Obama, they couldn't even shoot. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you had to be shot at first, and maybe if you have to lose a few limbs before you can shoot back. Well, to speak to a point you made, Robert, when you said, you know, ISIS, is it a non-story? And you're talking about all these exploding stories coming up. Are we actually going to hear them? Because maybe the new flip on this for the new year might be no news is fake news because we're not hearing this. I turn the radio on every morning after I've talked to you and I, listen, I, I get a, a sense of what's really going on out there. I expect something of this to be heard somewhere, and it's still like I'm living in backward land. Like, even on our local newscasts, it's getting embarrassing listening to our local broadcasters. Not all of them, but most of them. Like, they're not even connected to the real world. No, they're not. And this uh, Trump derangement syndrome is so deep and so wide it's now. Incredible. I mean, it has become a pathology, a neurosis. If you take the Canadian media, you know, all the major newspaper, including National Post, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, they are all in their comment section and in their editorial section, basically anti-Trump never Trumpers. They are just repeating the same line of how Trump is not fit for this office, you know, with his tweets and with his... To whom does that appeal anymore? I don't see the appeal of those arguments, even if I were wanting to agree with it anymore. It's just so repetitive. Well, I don't know how to explain it other than the fact 
that the biggest story of 2016 was the election of Trump. 2017 has also been a Trump year in, in North American politics. But the biggest story being the election of Trump was missed by the best and the brightest, so-called best and the brightest, of the American media and intellectual class. Even on the evening of the election, the mainstream media, uh, New York Times, if I remember, was running that uh, Hillary Clinton has a 20-point lead over Trump. Uh, There was a complete, in a sense, conviction that Trump was a buffoon and he will have his final upcoming or, you know, his final denouement with the election and Hillary will just wipe the whole thing out. This conviction was totally blown apart with the election but of Was Trump. it a missed story or was it a complete no, scandal goes, in the goes, sense it, of they're purposely not no, telling No, it goes to prove that when you're invested with certain ideas and you blinker yourself to it, you live in that, bu- uh, that bubble, then you s- dismiss out all the other contradictory factors, and you don't want to look at them. So to borrow a phrase, they, they all become inconvenient truths. They become inconvenient <laughs> truths. So they were invested in this story, and they're the best and the brightest. I mean, we can run a number of stories from our, our memory of the biggest stories that the media got it all wrong. For instance, the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union. Did anybody predict that? Nobody predicted it. It was the biggest story. The CIA had it wrong. All the American intellectual class had it wrong. I mean, nobody predicted. Did they predict the loss of the Americans in Vietnam War? They got it wrong. But then again, just to go back to that, uh, Ronald Reagan um, had Star Wars program basically to bankrupt the Soviet Union, and it actually worked, I think, in retrospect. In 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 retrospect, in retrospect, in retrospect, we know that Trump won, right? Uh, But the people who who were invested in in writing and predicting and were confident of what the outcome is going to be got it all wrong. New York Times got it wrong. Washington Post got it wrong. NBC, ABC, CBS, You know, sometimes I think that they don't necessarily get things wrong as they know that polls and the opinion uh, of the editorial pages actually drive the agenda and drive the vote sometimes. So even though they are facing defeat, they sometimes print that Hillary is winning because people want to vote for a winner, even though they they know she's losing. But they say that she's winning because it might sway people to vote for her and, and as a last-ditch effort. Well, in this case, it doesn't seem that, in, in, in my reading of it. In this case, it was that Trump won and run, won by foul means. And that's where the Russia story comes in. They created that Russia story to basically explain why their understanding of what the results would be turned out so awfully wrong. And that's what we are dealing with. And so this whole year, as you come back to the ISIS story, the whole year they have run with the story about Paul Manafort being indicted, Michael Flynn is... It's getting sickening. You know, they're going to get... Yeah, they're going to get Trump's son. They're going to get Trump's son-in-law. The walls are closing in on him and so on and so forth. For them, it is, again, this obsession, whereas the actual thing is happening, as you, Bob, pointing out elsewhere. And I can't help it, but I must say, to me, as an observer and a sports lover, this is a great player, say, uh, uh, Michael Jordan or, or somebody of that sort in basketball doing the head fake, you know, 
and moving in on the opposite direction. Adik. So Trump has been doing the head fakes with the streets and name calling and, you know, going after, like he went after the New York Senator uh, Gillibrand. Uh, you know, this is the woman who basically ran on the court tail of Hillary Clinton. And then when the stories came out about the sexual molesters, she had been up front trying to denounce them. So... Trump went after her. So these are the head fake. People get very upset with him. And of course, the media, you know, is like, you know, hanging a worm and the fish is biting it, you know, and, and the media's fish is biting the worm, whereas the true story is where it's happening. Take the ISIS case. Take the case of the tax reform. Take other foreign policy cases that has happened, you know. Where are we headed with North Korea? Uh, North Korea is the one. He has he's pulled the coalition together. It's about the Chinese. And then, and then again, suddenly things get very quiet, don't they? It, it gets very quiet, and we don't know what is in the back happening. But Trump's Asia tour was a demonstration of how he has brought people together, the leaders to, together, by being a strong leader, not... Obama talked about uh, leading from behind. So his speech at the UN and now his national security policy that was released at the end of December, uh, what is now being defined as principal realism. And uh, what Trump spoke about, and just to remind your audience at the United Nations when he went and gave his first speech in September, was that we are sovereign countries, each one of us in the, in the, in the United in the United Nations, and we must take responsibility as sovereign countries about our own state of affairs. It is not for the United Nations to tell us. It is for us to know what it is. And we, and in this case, as Trump was saying, we, that is the United States, we will follow our interests and we expect you all to follow your interests. And that's how we will come together. We will negotiate. We will bargain. It is not some diplomat sitting in New York or in Geneva that is going to tell us. And that was an invitation that, you know, you Palestinian, you Arab, what is your, your interest? Put your interests on the table. We are putting our interests on the table. And so this is principal realism as he defines it. This is America first. This is not about parking your foreign policy to let some unknown bureaucrats in Geneva or New York then run with your foreign policy. And I think that's what the American people have been waiting for. I mean, this this whole vote that happened at the UN at the end of the year on the Jerusalem issue, uh, Nikki Haley warned that we are going to remember this. We're going to take note. And then immediately after, yes, they cut the, the budget. Two hundred eighty-five million. That two hundred and forty-five million dollars <laughs> was going to be, you know, taken off yeah. from the UN budget. But that was already decided before. We will see what comes afterward. So there is going to be some cutbacks and reshaping. And I think the Trump's base is going to love it because people are fed up with the way the United Nations have operated. I mean, on the whole issue of Israel, it is a, a, a ganging up that takes place on a regular basis. You know, you have 57 Muslim countries of the OIC ganging up with the European states now, the EU. That's the 128 members that voted, you know, and the third world countries from Africa and Latin America ganging up on Israel alone, you know. And if it was not for the United Nations uh, States there to veto the bills, or the votes, Israel would be run out of the United Nations. I mean, the, the outrage. Countries like Saudi Arabia uh, and Cuba and Zimbabwe sitting on Human Rights Council and telling us Canadians and Americans, you know, what it is about human rights. You know, Ayn Rand commented on the United Nations half a century ago, and she said, 
what would you expect from a crime-fighting committee whose board of directors included the leading gangsters of the community? And she said, basically, that's your makeup of the UN, and, yeah. it, and it never had a moral legitimacy. Right. Well, we need, we need an organization to let people come together and chat, but not at the expense of the United States. And I think that is what happened during the last 25 years. It was mm-hmm. at the expense of the United States, and people have gone fed up. Because the United States pays more than one-fifth of the UN budget, and the peacekeeping budget, which is the biggest budget of the United Nations, it is close to $7 billion dollars. Almost 30% of that is paid by the United States. Now, you take away United States, and then what have you got there then? You've got the others. They're not poning up with the, with the funding. They, they talk all, I mean, the Arab countries, for instance. No, I think they're all there to use the United States. Precisely. They abuse it. And this vote was, looking back at it, Trump pulled the curtains up and revealed who they are. You know? That's right. According to a really fascinating column by Vivian Berkovich, who's the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, it's interesting that it took Trump to expose what she calls the stupidity of denying Jerusalem's reality. I want to bring into the show Vivian Berkovich on this. Vivian, great to talk to you as always. You served as Canada's ambassador to Israel in Tel Aviv, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit for people that aren't as familiar with this backstory here, why the Tel Aviv versus Jerusalem divide has always been mired in this this politics and political rhetoric. It's uh, one of the most uh, bizarre oddities of international diplomacy. Israel, of course, is the only country um, whose designated capital has never been recognized uh, globally until, of course, President Trump did so. So there is a history already to recognizing Israel's chosen capital. Yes, absolutely. And I haven't actually got the addresses of all of these embassies, but uh, I assume that most of them, if not all, were located in West Jerusalem. Even the U.S. consulate in Israel, which is uh, the office uh, from which all relations are conducted with the West Bank and Gaza, with the Palestinians, is located in West Jerusalem. So, you know, even when I was ambassador, and before and after, you have to sort of sit back and look and ask, why all of this hullabaloo? All, of, all diplomats, all international diplomats, travel down the highway from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, smallest country probably in the world, with such a huge diplomatic contingent, and most diplomats spent way too much time in their cars, Um, and they go there seemingly without any conscientious objections to meet with the president and all sitting members of the Knesset, including Israeli Arabs, to meet with all kinds of government officials, yet they can't locate their embassy there? Why not? This is part of Israel. West Jerusalem is unequivocally, indisputably part of Israel. Salim, let's bring it back home to Canada. I think Justin Trudeau, in the shadow of Donald Trump and America making itself great again, as being a buffoon. To put it mildly, he's a clown. He's somebody who is so easy to ridicule 
from his behavior, his abstention of the vote in the United Nations about Jerusalem. Um, he's wanting to rehabilitate members of ISIS when they come back to Canada. His approval of things like sanctuary cities. He's visiting the Aga Khan against the ethics commissioner's uh, judgment. Um, and, and him dismissing it like, oh, okay, I, I won't do that again. Justin Trudeau, as a representative of Canada in the world, your thoughts? Well, my main worry is not only Justin Trudeau, but what about Canadians themselves, or at least the Canadian uh, elite who shaped Justin Trudeau's policy, who echoed Justin Trudeau, and the people who have voted for Justin Trudeau. And I worry about that. I worry about it in the sense that in the next election, will Justin Trudeau come back? Will he get a second term? Well, remember that only 38% of Canadians voted Liberal last election. True, but that 38% that voted Liberal gave Justin Trudeau over 35 seats majority. Well, that is our parliamentary system, but I'm just saying that he does not reflect a majority of the viewpoint of true. Canada. That's true of almost any democratically elected government. And so I we're, but we're giving him. We're, we are given Justin Trudeau. So the, the reality of the situation is he's our prime minister. He's the one who represents us overseas. How is he going to no, handle I, himself in, in, in the shadow of a, a Donald Trump? You're right. Uh, all I was pointing out that, you know, we are stuck with Justin Trudeau, but we are stuck word with Justin Trudeau because we Canadians voted him, whoever, the 38%. Yeah. We, are, we are a multi-party system, so no party has a 50% support base. What, what it means and what it shows is that our elite, Justin Trudeau is part of the elite, the Laurentian elite, the Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto elite, is basically out of his depth now when it comes to understanding the change world, and particularly the change world under the leadership of Trump, with Trump in, in Washington, in the White House. Our elite uh, do not know what is anymore Canada's interest. I mean, every single issue is now up to be questioned. I mean, take the vote on the UN. We are a G7 country. We are supposed to be, as a G7 country, the closest ally of the United States. Otherwise, why we are there? Why not Australia? You know, what is the merit of Canada being a G7 and not Australia? It was because the Americans chose to have us on the G7 uh, that, that makes us a G7 country. And here we abstain. Is there going to be a cost on this? There's an after negotiation going on. The Americans will be qu very quick to remind us, how can we trust you guys? There's a question of immigration and the wall and Canada, which you talked about earlier on. Uh, we are welcoming ICs back and we are going to rehabilitate them. We haven't got much of a position on how to deal with the Middle East and terrorism, you know, at least at the public level. What the, our security agencies are doing is something different. Maybe that's not being discussed. But at the public level, Justin Trudeau's attitude is completely out of sync with the views in Washington of the Trump administration. So there's a cost for that, you know, as uh, the president is shaping up America's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the United Nations. In other words, um, it is a policy of America first. It is a policy of bargaining with sovereign nation states, that they have a clear understanding of their own national interest. What is Canada's national interest? That's the question to be asked. Well, according to Justin Trudeau, Canada is not even really a country. It has no culture we of its no own. Culture, exactly. He is and an yet, internationalist versus the nationalist of Donald Trump. Yeah. He is an internationalist. And what does that mean? Who do we follow? Donald Trump tore up the Paris Accord. We are heavily invested. Justin Trudeau went with 300 people to sign the Paris Accord. 
Trump tore up the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Justin Trudeau is heavily invested in that. He went around recently, was in Japan and in Philippines and other states, talking up TPP. We are a trading nation, obviously, and so we need trade and we need trading partners. But under this multilateral agreement, how do we defend Canadian interests? We well, are, I have a question for you. Then why, why then so many times during 2017 did we hear Trump speak very warmly of Justin Trudeau? What, what was behind that? Because that really confused a lot of Canadians. He's a great diplomat. Who? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. So you don't speak down no, to your I'm next door talk, neighbor. I'm not talking about just diplomacy. That's that's a certain level. But it, it it came across as though Canada and the U.S. are very much sharing a common direction, a goal. However, that, that's just how it came across in the media, at least. Again, the media. But my my, my reading is that Canada is not on Trump's radar. Ah, okay. That <laughs> might be totally. Uh, we we are we are not at at the moment. I mean, it will come into a radar if if there are issues that are bubbling below the surface, burst up. I mean, we're talking about illegal immigration and a traffic of drugs, and with the opiate crisis in the United States, if these things uh, are seen coming through Canadian borders then we will rise up in the radar. We haven't yet, because Trump has been pretty much engaged in the domestic infighting this 2017, and he has been dealing with the bigger issues, Middle East, and we haven't talked enough about the Middle East, because Middle East is dramatically changing, with East Asia, the Korean issue, uh, with a trade issue, and Canada is seen as a peaceful country, you know, and Again, my reading, Trump's entertaining Justin Trudeau when he went down to Washington, I think it was in February or March of last year, soon after Trump became the president in the inauguration. I think Trump sees him as a young man, like one of his son-in-laws and, and his sons, you know, and he hasn't put any pressure on him, you know, hasn't asked any well, hard well, questions. Well, to his credit, so, too, Trudeau hasn't really stuck it to, to Trump no. either in, in the diplomatic sense. Exactly. He's been very so polite too. In some ways, it is good that we he hasn't taken notice of us. But for us as Canadians, we have to ask ourselves the question. Take the Canada's China policy, where Trump is going to be hard on China and is being hard on China. We are ready to sell our goods to Canada that may open up to, to China uh, in a manner in which we basically imperil our interests, I would say, our energy policy, our investment policy. We are inviting China in to become our biggest partner. And the asymmetry of the relationship is so huge. China is voracious. China is going around the world buying up things because China needs it to sustain its ambition to be the great power. Do we want to help that? Do we want to contribute to China becoming that? Well, I think it's perfectly in line with Justin Trudeau's ideology that he aligned himself with a dictatorial country. Right. Uh, and, and until recently, a communist country. I, I wouldn't venture to say it's communist anymore, but it's certainly a one-party state. Didn't, didn't he say some time ago how much he admired China's ability to make decisions? Yeah. Because, yeah. 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 So there it is. And, and the same thing, his admiration for Castro, for Cuba, 
for all the basically, you know, one-party state dictators, the same thing with well, the Middle East. Let's face it, his father, Pierre, was definitely a yeah. true socialist. Yeah. Right, to the core. So he's obviously been brought up with these values. Well, and his brother is part of that. You know, his, his only brother, the youngest, died in an accident. But the other brother, he has been one who has been going around with the left wing, uh, a hardcore left wing. So, yes, I mean, and so this is what we as Canadians need to ask. It's funny that we see the polarization of the left and the right on the political spectrum. And by left and right, I'm, I'm using the terms loosely. I mean, of course, the Republicans in the United States versus the Democrats and perhaps conservatives and liberals here in Canada. There's an increasing polarization. And yet I think that's indicative of the relationship between Canada and the United States now. This can't go on without some sort of something giving, something tearing, if you know what I mean. Well, the cost, the cost is going to get steeper. Uh, Trump said uh, at the end of last year in one of his uh, public uh, rallies that a nation without border is not a nation. And precisely, I mean, I think all three of us around this table will agree a nation without border and a defended border is not a nation anymore. The recent news out of France is Macron, despite all of his talk, has become very tough on the issue of illegal immigration and migration from North Africa, from Africa, and of course from the Middle East. And he has been sending out the French uh, security forces to clean up uh, some of the camps that have been illegally set up. So the immigration issue, the migration issue, was going to be a big issue. You know, If you all recall, I had spoken about this in the parliament uh, on a committee hearing when I was in, invited as an expert witness several years ago. I said that, you know, this is the issue that needs to be widely and openly and publicly discussed and not simply a decisions being made, being made on these issues by bureaucrats. But we as a country, we don't have this, this discussion going on. And you can see that over the last two years, the immigration and migration issue has become the number one issue in, in, a, in a way in global politics. And it will continue to be so. If you want Canada to be on Donald Trump's radar... Justin Trudeau, then you'd have to continue with your current immigration policy because that, if anything, is going to turn the eye of the United States toward this country, believe me. Uh, I think so. And the manner in which this government, Justin's government, has gone about appeasing that we as a country, our leadership, our political masters, have been in a state of full monty in embracing and appeasing the Islamists in the country and in the parliament. The the motion M103 that the, the parliament passed, the recent firing of Kristen Williams yes. uh, that all three of us know around yes, the Christine state. Williams, yes. A journalist of quite notable talents and an author. She was fired from the Canadian Race Relations Foundation because of her writing in which she had been critical about the Islamists. Now, anyone anywhere in an advanced liberal democracy that cares about freedom of speech, not just simply talk about it, but when the rubber hits the road, cares about it and wants to stand up and protect it, must be deeply concerned in the direction we as a country are going. 
Well, Celine, the hour has rushed by, and while I guess we in Canada are stuck with Trudeau, the Americans are moving with Trump. And we'll keep our conversations moving next week when we'll ask you to join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be American history lesson. You don't know nothing about Lady Liberty standing there in a the hub with her torch on high, screaming out to all the nations of the world, send me your poor, your deadbeats, your filthy. <laughs> and all the nations sent them in here. They come swarming in like ants. Your Spanish PRs from the Caribbean. Your Japs, your Chinamen, your Krauts and your Hebes and your Lincoln Spanish. And they're all free to live in their own separate sections. Where they feel safe and they bust your head if you go in there. That's what makes America great, buddy.